Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will wrap up Abdul Malik's long and successful reign. While the oral narrations we get during his time in charge are mostly about the many Arab rebellions against him, there remains a lot to discuss. If we don't take the time to appreciate the policy changes he enacted, we will miss how deeply transformative this caliph really was. Let's marvel at his many accomplishments together in episode 27, Imperial Caliphate. Since we've already covered almost everything mentioned in our sources during Abdul Malik's time in charge, today's episode won't be as long as the others. There are still a few developments worth mentioning, but the better part of our discussion will be a brief analysis of some of the policy changes decreed by the Caliph. While we have already touched upon many of them, it is important to take a closer look to understand how they changed the Caliphate. Since they aren't detailed anywhere in our sources, we will catch glimpses of them in various narrations and will have to navigate their impact through those. I guess the biggest non-policy events we haven't really talked about were the triumphs outside the East. I touched on sequential victories in Africa after a massive army sent to it under a Hassan ibn Nu'man. And there was a severe pacification of Armenia and also some conquests on the edges of the Byzantine Empire around southeastern Turkey today. These were important expansions, but our sources mentioned them only in passing. As the earliest transcriptions of oral histories, they tend to amplify Arab-on-Arab Arab issues, since those generated far more narrations than raids on foreign peoples. I don't want to go too deep into topics unmentioned in our sources, but it's worth spending a little bit more time on the Byzantines. I'm no expert on Byzantium, but if you try to read about its history around this time like I did, you'll find that things started going really badly for them around 695, which was about two to three years after Abdul Malik had defeated Ibn Zubayr. This resurgence in Arab unity and strength under an effective caliph could not have come at a worse time for the Byzantines, as their own internal issues would soon erupt into decades of civil war within the empire, with over half a dozen claimants to the Byzantine throne culminating in the end of the Heraclean dynasty. Indeed, the line of Heraclius entirely. Now this works well with the history we're told in our sources. We know that the Byzantines had been more successful at combating the Arabs earlier in Abdul Malik's reign, getting the caliph to pay them tribute to keep the peace. He even agreed to split the tax revenue of Cyprus with the empire, a concession he wouldn't have granted if Byzantium had been militarily weak. But by the time he had gotten his affairs in order in the early 90s, the Byzantines were more of a paper tiger. Getting Armenia to switch sides could have been threatening to the caliphate, but Abdul Malik had little trouble in overcoming that rebellion, just like his armies had no trouble defeating the Byzantines in pretty much every encounter from then on. This all suggests a pronounced drop in Byzantine military effectiveness and morale around this time. The pacification of Armenia gives us a chance to discuss how things worked in Abdul Malik's caliphate. The new governor of Armenia was one of the caliph's ten brothers. 
a capable general himself, Muhammad ibn Marwan had played a big part in recapturing the province and in suppressing other rebellions around the area later, like Ibn al-Ash'ath's. His martial exploits around Mesopotamia made him close to the Adnani tribes which lived there, and over time he became their channel to official power and the caliph's ear. Abdul Malik's other relatives in charge of the caliphate's different provinces played a similar role, each governor serving as the root of his local branch of Umayyad influence. Through Muhammad, the Adnani tribes around Armenia and Mesopotamia had someone they could organize around to go about the noble work of raiding settled populations, winning wealth and fame. Muhammad also communicated their concerns to his brother, giving their leaders some real prestige and influence. This was a good system that went a long way towards keeping the peace within the caliphate. It led to strong ties between these Umayyads and their local networks, and incentivized powerful tribes and coalitions to fight on behalf of the caliphate. The one area where the Umayyads had given up on trying to establish local ties was Iraq. After the defeat of Ibn al-Ash'ath's rebellion, al-Hajjaj founded a new canton city, almost exactly between Kufa and Basra. He garrisoned it with Syrian men, and used Iraq's taxes to pay their salaries. The sources offer us various reasons for this move, but I think we can agree that it was obviously meant to subdue the Iraqis and forestall any future insurrections against Umayyad rule. The new city of Wasit flourished almost immediately, as large sums were spent on agricultural projects in its surroundings, despite the fact that Iraq was broke. This leads us to another sort of development in the caliphate, its financial administration. Our sources are probably not the best ones to use for this topic. There are a few other works from later centuries which take it on with greater precision. Several things do become obvious from just these early histories, though. We've already mentioned that Abdul Malik is credited with minting the first Arab coins, and more importantly decreeing that Arabic replace whatever local languages were being used to keep financial records. These were consequential changes, which both formalized the caliphate's influence over its people's lives and further legitimized its claim to represent all Arabs, and so they bear repeating. The importance of these reforms won't fully come about for another couple generations, but eventually we'll get to see how politically assertive the Arab bureaucracies they spawned became. Something which had a much more immediate impact, however, was Abdul Malik's use of public money and lands. The second caliph, Omar, had spent revenues from the lands locally, and their partial diversion to the central treasury under his successor was often cited as a major complaint during the rebellion which led to his death. Although after the first fitna, Muawiyah repeatedly granted lands to his loyalists, commanders, and inner circles, he largely left the ones in Iraq to the management of his capable governors, both of whom used local revenues to improve their cities, which later thrived under the care of Ziyad. Things had come a long way since then, however. The second fitna and the many subsequent rebellions in the east had depleted the Iraqis and reduced their importance within the caliphate. After breaking them in every which way, al-Hajjaj now took their taxes with impunity, though it seems like there wasn't that much left to take. Our sources make it clear that Iraq was severely impoverished under his administration, which in light of all of its wars and the deadly punishments which ensued, makes perfect sense. Armies were still entitled to four-fifths of any war booty they captured, 
but almost no money was spent on the Iraqi cities of Kufa and Basra, which is why Wasit's immediate blooming is so notable. Abdul Malik used his lands for more than just rewarding his loyalists, once again taking a cue from Muawiyah and expanding upon it. He decided the caliph could sell these lands to anyone who promised to invest in them. The new owner would even get an exceptionally low rate of taxation to help offset their expenses. This was a sweet deal, and the Umayyads themselves bought huge tracts of land to ensure their wealth remained protected. It effectively gave Abdul Malik the power to reward anyone anywhere, generate wealth at the drop of a hat, and as a bonus, made it necessary for the Ummah's rich and ambitious to maintain strong ties to the Umayyads. So when lands and wasit went up for sale, there was no shortage of buyers eager to invest. The Iraqis and Basra and Kufa resented the new state of affairs, but there was nothing they could do about it. This may seem like a trivial change, but here again we have a policy which increased official power and made the ruling class more worthy of the name. Once upon a time, Al-Kufa's governor had candidly remarked that Iraq's fertile lands were the gardens of the Quraysh, and his words led to an uproar which avalanched into the first fitna. There was nobody to stand in the way of Abdul Malik's power now, though. And the government of the Ummah was clearly a much more one-sided affair than it had ever been. Even under Muawiyah and his heedless son Yazid, there had been efforts to keep important tribes like Quraysh in the fold. Abdul Malik had no need for any of that. Umayyad power was now the only game in town, and the Ummah's tribes rushed over one another to try and earn favor with the caliphate's ruling clan. We can get a better look at the power dynamics within the caliphate by examining Abdul Malik's succession. Abdul Malik intended to name his own son Al Walid, but the problem was that he already had a designated successor, his brother Abdul Aziz, who had governed Egypt ever since Marwan had retaken the province from Ibn Zubayr. This was the arrangement their father had bequeathed them, and despite repeated pleas from the all powerful caliph, Abdul Aziz refused to relinquish his position as next in line. Before we resolve this family drama, it is worth glancing at the way Abdul Aziz ruled Egypt for the two decades he was in charge. His government style was nothing like what we reported in the East, making it clear that Abdul Malik gave his brothers and trusted governors ample leeway within their domains. It seems like he never raised the taxes on non Muslims in Egypt and accepted its Mawadi as full fledged Muslims, exempt from taxation and welcome to fight in his armies. With the exception of some stories about tensions between him and Christian clergy in Alexandria, he seems to have gotten along great with everyone, the locals, the Arab armies, the tribes, and he didn't have to rely on Syrian assistance to keep anything under control. He invested great sums in the Canton city, and when a plague began to spread one year, he built a new town on a hill about 10 miles south, which served as a sort of administrative hub. His many construction projects which included palaces, mosques, baths, bridges, and other improvements, surely went a long way towards shaping Islamic architecture at this embryonic stage. Anyway, enough about Abdul Aziz and his love for Egypt. It says a lot that Abdul Malik never forced the issue, and only tried reasoning and pleading with his brother over and over. He was spared having to do anything about it, as his brother passed away in May of 705 and after a fitting funeral he was replaced as successor by Walid and as governor by Abdullah, two of Abdul Malik's sixteen sons. 
It was a real stroke of luck for the caliph, who passed away himself only five months later. Abdul Malik was such an indefatigable and creative leader, pursuing so many different projects and ends simultaneously, that it was difficult to cover him with any kind of chronological order. Our classical sources report two start dates for his reign, the day his father passed away and the day he defeated Ibn Zubayr. Later histories prefer the first, and they tend to downgrade Ibn Zubayr's tenure as caliph to a Qurayshi rebellion against Umayyad rule. If we adopt this generous perspective towards the Umayyads, then Abdul Malik ruled for over 20 years, making him the longest reigning caliph. Muawiyah is a close second at 19, another similarity between the two capable leaders. And although Uthman is a distant third with 12 years in charge, he too was an Umayyad. The clan's style of tribal-oriented government seems to have really worked for the Arabs, and Abdul Malik elevated it to serve the needs of a budding state. Of his 20 years in charge, the first seven were his most dangerous, when he had to contend with the Byzantines, the sons of Ibn Zubayr, and the raging tribal conflict all at once. His handling of these many serious threats was truly masterful. He actively looked for new solutions to his many problems and never made the same mistake twice. I mean, think about it. With all this going on, he still commissioned the Dome of the Rock and sent an exploratory force to North Africa. He negotiated with the Adnanis, the Iraqis, the Karajites, and the Zubayrids, the only one of these many factions who tried to coax his opponents. After he had succeeded in checking all his rivals and defeating Mus'ab ibn Zubayr in Iraq around 692, he immediately returned to Africa, sending it a massive army, and reversed Byzantine advances first in Armenia, then everywhere else. He also decreed his financial reforms and used money from the many land sales he approved to supply troops to fight against Iraq's repeated rebellions. His rule saw the appearance of the first desert palaces, built by the Umayyads and other connected tribes that bought large properties across the Caliphate. Ibn al-Ash'ath's rebellion in the year 700 was the closest Abdul Malik's position ever got to danger after Ibn Zubayr, and the situation pretty much resolved itself after Ibn al-Ash'ath lost control of his men and failed to accept Abdul Malik's generous offer. That whole mess was done and dusted by 704. During his last few years in charge, the Caliphate continued expanding following repeated victories in the east, while the Caliph fretted over how he was going to convince his brother to step aside. Abdul Malik understood the foundations of his clan's power well, and through his financial reforms and use of crown lands, he reinforced its position at the top of the caliphate in new ways which no other clan could hope to match. Although pro-Umayyad accounts do often try and play up his religiosity, it is obvious that he made no pretensions to being the prophet's successor in any way besides being the leader of his ummah. It reminds me of this questionable story about Muawiyah in our sources. Addressing the attendants at the mosque in Damascus, we are told that he described Abu Bakr and Omar as the most devout of his predecessors. He vowed to try to emulate their example, but added that he knew he could only fall short of their unmatchable piety. He concluded that despite his inadequacy, none of his successors would ever try as fervently as he would. There's a lot that's suspicious about this narration one of many which center around some eloquent bit of foresight by the Dahiyah. 
There's also the strange fact that Muawiyah would single out two caliphs for praise without mentioning his Ken Uthman, and would speak so humbly instead of blowing his own trumpet as usual. Since the narration is unlikely to be factual, it is probably trying to express the decay of the religious character of the Ummah's leadership. It cleverly makes note of how even Muawiyah compared favorably to the caliphs who eventually succeeded him, because he at least placed value on maintaining the appearance of piety. I'm not suggesting that Abdul Malik was irreligious or debauched. If anything, he had a reputation for being stingy and practical. His brother Abdul Aziz, however, was known to have been austere and pious, and lived simply despite his many lavish public works projects. I find Abdul Malik's decision to not pretend to any religious relevance to be refreshing in its honesty. After all, his position was an entirely political one, almost martial even, considering how he had conquered the whole ummah by leading its strongest army. Besides, not monopolizing the religious allowed for other figures to emerge and fill that gap. And Abdul Malik's long reign is when some of the very earliest scholars of Islamic jurisprudence were born. I think the development of this class of religious commentators would have been hindered if the caliph had insisted on being the fountainhead of this kind of authority. A lot of what we covered about Abdul Malik comes from two of our sources to the near exclusion of a third. Al-Mas'udi relays lots of fanciful and diverting stories, and he has a whole chapter on al-Hajjaj and his threatening speeches. It's a colorful record of the period in which the notorious governor of Iraq and the accomplished caliph seem to have occupied the largest places in Arab memory. He lists plenty of letters between the two, some that reveal the events of their times, and others simply to entertain. A few of those last letters are actually worth mentioning, as they belong to that first category, and in them, Al-Hajjaj complains to Abdul Malik about wanting to remove Al-Muhallab's son Yazid as governor of Khurasan. The caliph thought Yazid was doing a fine job, so he didn't allow it for a while, but eventually accepted he be replaced with his brother Mufaddal. I only mention this because the worsening relationship between Yazid and Al-Hajjaj will become more important going forward. It's not clear what the source of enmity was, Al-Hajjaj had always gotten along with Muhallab, Maybe he was worried that Yazid was getting too successful and might replace him one day. But that doesn't really make sense to me, and I find it hard to believe that Al-Hajjaj was insecure in his position. It was probably personal between the two, but who knows. I think that we've covered pretty much everything there is to say about this truly momentous caliph. Since we have so much time to spare, we can maybe take another minute or two to appreciate just how much smoother his succession was compared to the only other caliph who holds a candle to his legacy. Muawiyah had to kill a lot of people to make sure his son faced no competitors, and even then he had to warn Yazid about the ambitious Qurayshis he had to watch out for from his deathbed. Abdul Malik had no need for any of this. True, he did have to worry about his brother, but that's a good thing, as it shows that the caliph valued the fundamental unity from which the caliphate derived its stability, the unity of the Umayyad clan. He understood that a rift within the family threatened to unravel everything he had worked so hard to build, and he displayed admirable patience by not resorting to force in an effort to get his brother to abdicate. It's still abdication if you're next in line, right? There's really very little to criticize when it comes to Abdul Malik's administration. The Iraqis were pretty aggrieved, and it was largely due to his pugnacious governor al-Hajjaj. He probably went a little too far there, and the treatment of the Mawali in the Iraqi cities was truly terrible and never given much attention. 
In the long run, these minor issues will grow into real problems for the caliphate, but he can't really be faulted for missing these tiny cracks given everything he achieved. Abdul Malik inherited a war from his father, and he did more than just win it. He emerged as the most powerful caliph in charge of the most powerful version of the caliphate yet. When he passed it on to his son Walid, its armies were enjoying victorious momentum from Uzbekistan to Morocco, and there was no one with a rival claim to the leadership. To hear about how Walid did, join me next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.